Welcome, everybody. It's great to have you guys here with us today. I'm excited to jump into the Word of God together. If you uh, don't have a Bible and you need one, just raise your hand. We'll get one to you. Uh, we have a saying here in our church family that we like everyone to lay their own eyes on the Scriptures for themselves. And so you are jumping into the very end of a series, if this is your first time here today. And uh, if not, you've made it to the end, all right? Woo! Um, we're going to have a microchurch discussion uh, next Sunday about uh, the series that we've been in together called Following the Prince of Peace in a Culture of Violence. What we've been talking about is taking a look at Jesus' nonviolent life, his teachings, and what it means uh, for our context today in America. And if you haven't been a part of this or haven't looked at the other lessons, you can go onto our YouTube channel and find them there. Um, and I have to at least recognize and acknowledge that this series is only scratching the surface. Obviously, we are not doing a deep dive into many things that we could and perhaps will in the future. Uh, but these topics are really big. And uh, for, for most of us, I would say pretty countercultural, even to our Christian culture and our Christian heritage. Um, I'd like to invite you to go check out Jesus Peace Collective. Uh, you can go to JesusPeaceCollective.com. You can find a lot more resources there on these subjects. Sign up for emails, get updates uh, and notifications, etc. when new content drops. So I'm going to kind of review where we've been over the last several weeks. We've specifically discussed how Jesus' kingdom is at war with all other kingdoms of the world. And the way that Jesus' kingdom wages this war is not through violence or force, but rather through this self-giving love, even love of enemies. We've also talked about the origins of Christian nationalism, the idea of Jesus' kingdom and the kingdoms of the world blending together to become one thing. And this is the blending that so pervades our culture in America today through sentiments like one nation under God. America being a Christian nation, etc., etc. We talked about the origins of this and how it dates itself all the way back to the fourth century and the empire of Rome. And it has been the predominant mentality of Christians since that time, that for the last roughly 1,500 years or so, this blending of two kingdoms has been the undercurrent of most all Christian traditions. Last time we talked about the centerpiece of the Christian faith, and that is the resurrection of Jesus. And that our faith, just like we sung about just now, our faith in this resurrection frees us from our fear of death because we believe that death itself has been overcome and stripped of its power. This resurrection faith that we have in Jesus also leads us to not fear the threats of other humans, but rather to only have a proper fear of God who is sovereign over life and death, both temporally and eternally. And this resurrection faith empowers us to live nonviolently, just like Jesus, because we don't have to defend ourselves or our lives at all costs. It frees us to be willing to die. So today we're going to close out with this final lesson of the series, peacemaking, not passivity. I hope to shape a few contours of what it looks like to follow the Prince of Peace in our culture of violence and what that looks like in our day-to-day -day life. This is obviously where most people want to begin the conversation. 
When you first are introduced to these ideas, we first want to jump to all the practical scenarios. I think it's important to resist that urge to not begin there. But eventually we do have to get there. And so I'm not going to answer all the questions today. I can't give you a black and white answer of what a human being who follows Jesus should do in every possible scenario of human existence. Jesus himself, the scriptures don't do that for us. But hopefully we can be a community of faith that continually seeks and desires to be a learner, one that is characterized by this quote that we have been founded on the entire time. That we as Christians who follow in the way of Christ should be willing to question and if necessary, adjust their deeply held convictions and to ask probing questions of others in a spirit of amity and sincere inquisitiveness. May this characterize our hearts and minds. So as we begin to talk about peacemaking, not passivity, I want to define some terms, okay? It's important for us to know what we're talking about and what we're not talking about. I like this definition that one author poses of how to define Christian nonviolence. It's a way of life modeled after Jesus, one that completely rejects violence, actively confronts evil, and unconditionally loves others by practicing gracious hospitality, radical forgiveness, and deep compassion. When I think about these topics, I like the way another author put it. They said, the bottom line for me in terms of the biblical basis for peacemaking has always been the example of Jesus. Try as I might, I can't imagine Jesus pushing the button to release a bomb, firing a gun at someone, or engaging in a knockdown, drag out fight with an adversary. This is not to say, however, that Jesus didn't vigorously confront evil and wrongdoing. In fact, he overturned tables of the money changers. He condemned the Pharisees for their hypocrisy and self-righteousness. But I just can't imagine him deliberately hurting or killing another human being. This is Bixler from her work, Pursuing Peace. So as I've been venturing into this for the last couple of years, and obviously it's kind of coming forward now in a more um, um, structured way through my work and my dissertation and the research here, but one of the common questions that I get over and over again as I have these conversations with people, especially for the first time, is the scenario of what do I do with the killer at my door? What do I do with the intruder that comes into my house? Am I not called to protect innocent people? What if an armed gunman bent on killing comes into this house of worship right now as I'm preaching this sermon? This is not an unrealistic hypothetical situation. I have some lovely women in the Lord from Columbia, where I used to serve in the ministry. I served in the ministry there in Columbia, South Carolina, when the shootings in Charleston happened at the AME church there. I believe nine or so people were killed. This is not an unrealistic hypothetical. And for many of us, this is the first place our minds go, and rightly so, it's understandable. Hopefully, however, we've been able to lay a foundation scripturally 
to understand how we can arrive at some conclusions and some frameworks to think about questions like this. I want to share something that Dr. Preston Sprinkle said. A kind of tongue-in-cheek interaction about the same kind of conversation. It goes like this. Okay, John. Say a person with a gun is breaking into your house and trying to kill your family. What are you going to do as a Christian, a Jesus follower? I'll use nonviolence to stop him. No, that won't work. Why not? Because this is the real world. But nonviolence works all the time in the real world, both on an individual level and on a national level. It's been well documented. Well, whatever. In this situation, it won't work. That's not the real world. Okay, just say in this situation, it doesn't work. How come I can't play this game? What game? Playing a role in constructing the scenario. How come you get to make up all the rules and possible options? Why don't we both put our heads together to figure out a real-life scenario with real-life options? Um, no. Why not? Just because. So I can't pitch in some thoughts about your scenario? No. Well, okay, go ahead and construct your real-life scenario, and I'll sit back here with my hands neatly folded. Okay, so say a guy is breaking into your house with a gun, and he's going to kill your family. Would you shoot him? I don't keep a loaded gun in the house. Okay, well, let's just say that you do. I don't. For this situation, let's just say you do, for the sake of argument. What about my kids? Homes with loaded guns put kids at risk. It's been well documented. And I love my kids, and I have a duty to protect them. So keeping a loaded gun puts them at greater risk. Yeah, but for this scenario, they're not at risk. Okay, fine. Loaded gun, no kids at risk, real-life scenario, go. What are you going to do? Kill the killer or let your family get shot? Am I a good shot? Yes. I'll shoot the gun out of his hand. <laughs> well, okay, you're not that good of a shot. <laughs> then I might miss the killer and blow my kid's head off. Okay, well, let's just say that you're not so good of a shot that you could shoot the gun out of his hand, but you're good enough shot that you won't miss and shoot your wife. This is your real-life scenario? Yes. Okay. Sort of a good shot, but not that good of a shot. Got it. Real-life scenario. So does God exist in your scenario? Um, well, yes, God exists. The God of the Bible? Um, yes, the God of the Bible. This God of the Bible who exists in your scenario, does he answer prayer? Well, yeah, but not in this scenario. <laughs> not in this scenario? Not in this scenario. Real world? Real world. You're 100% sure that prayer won't work in this scenario. 100%. Have you read about Hezekiah and Sennacherib? Huh? Never mind. Keep going. Okay. So are you going to kill him or let your family get killed? What if I offer to give him my house, my two cars, and everything I have in savings if he would just leave? You know, lavish my enemy with love and protect my family. Who knows? 
Maybe he'll become the next Jean Valjean. He won't take it. He won't take it. That's like $300,000 out the door. Who wouldn't take that? Because he wants to kill you and your family. Really? This is a human being? Like, he'd rather kill me and my family than take $300,000? I've never heard of such a human being. Do they really exist? In this scenario, yes. He's set on killing you. He's like programmed to kill. 100% dead set on killing me with no way to be persuaded otherwise. Yes. But in the real world, human beings are created in God's image with breakable wills, conflicting desires and emotions. The pre-programmed robotic human of your scenario doesn't really exist, does he? In this case, he does. Okay, so let me get this straight. A pre-programmed robotic human being is breaking into my home with a gun. Any attempt to stop him without using violence is taken off the table, despite the fact that nonviolent attempts to apprehend bad people with guns does actually work in the real world. And in your real world scenario, I have quick access to a loaded gun in the house, which happens to be no threat to my four children. I'm a pretty good shot, but not that good of a shot. God exists in this scenario, but despite the fact that this God typically answers prayer for this scenario, the heavenly phone is off the hook. And this cyborg would rather kill me and my family rather than walk away with $300,000. And this is somehow your real world? Yes, yes, that's the scenario. What would you do? I would pinch myself because I must be in a dream. Your supposed real life scenario is not the real world at all. It's a world where Jesus is still in the tomb. Prayer doesn't work. A deistic God stands off in the distance and the deception of power has clouded your Christian thinking. But my world, the real world, has a crucified lamb, an empty tomb, and direct access to the heavenly throne, which is more effective than 10 tons of C4. I don't live in a theoretical world. I live in a world turned upside down by a God who justifies the ungodly and calls us to love our enemies. First time I read that, I thought, this sounds very familiar. Many of the conversations that I have had want to start with that scenario. Regardless of how realistic you think it is in the real world or not is a bit irrelevant. What's relevant is how we understand God. What we believe about Jesus and whether or not he is still in the tomb or not. Jesus calls us to peacemaking, not passivity. Often when I discuss this with people, the two get confused. People think that being passive is being passive. And it's hard in the English language to even distinguish the two. You have to look at them being written often. Jesus was not passive. Jesus was a peacemaker. In our English language today, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines the term pacifism with an F as having an attitude or policy of non-resistance. But the word pacifism with an F is originally derived from a Latin term, pacific, which means to make peace. Pax or pac is peace. Many of you have heard of the Pax Romana, 
the peace of Rome. Our word pacifism is rooted in the definition of making peace, not non-resistance. You see, there's a subtle change there. The Oxford Dictionary defines being passive with a V as accepting or allowing what happens or what others do without active response or resistance. This is not the way of Jesus. Jesus actively resisted evil and he actively made peace, but he did so without resorting to violence. Matthew chapter 26. In verse 52, in the scene of the garden when Jesus is being arrested, he's come back into Jerusalem expecting his death. And he is well on his way to his eminent murder. And at the scene of his capture, Peter, his closest and most devoted disciple, who only moments before said that he was willing to die with Jesus that very night, well, now Peter's words are hanging in the balance. And his willingness to die is being enacted right here as the authorities with their weaponry come and arrest his rabbi. And he pulls out a sword and he defends himself and his rabbi and his loved ones in this murderer at the door scenario. And Jesus' response could not be more clear. Verse 52, put your sword back in its place. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword Do you not think that I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Jesus was not passive. He was not a doormat that people just walked all over. Jesus acknowledges in this scene that he does not lack power or authority his own life and the life of his friends and loved ones are on the line, but rather than utilizing his power and authority violently towards other human beings in a way that his disciples expected and in the way that the Romans expected, instead, he uses his power in a way that makes peace and at the same time subverts and overcomes human violence. Acts chapter 22. We see one of Jesus' disciples take upon himself this same usage of nonviolent resistance. So pacifism with an F is not the same as pacifism with a V. Non-resistance is not the same as nonviolent resistance. It is my conviction that Jesus made peace and he was not passive. Jesus was not non-resistant. Instead, he was non-violently resistant. And Paul follows in Jesus' footsteps. We see this scene of Paul in a very similar situation to his Lord. The threat of his life in the balance. Being arrested and accused wrongfully and unjustly. In verse 22, the crowd listened to Paul until he said this, talking about the resurrection. 
Then they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, their sign of disapproval and outrage, the commander ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. He directed that he be flogged and interrogated in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. Now, that's an interesting tactic. Let's find out the truth. Flog the guy. We never use torture to find out truth in our culture, do we? And as they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do? He asked, this man is a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and asked, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. Then the commander said, I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship, but I was born a citizen, Paul replied. Those who were about to interrogate him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. There are so many parallels to this story with Paul and the Roman commander and Jesus in front of Pilate. Both Jesus and his disciple Paul employ the same types of nonviolent resistance. Do you remember what we talked about? What did Jesus do in the war of two kingdoms with Pilate that caused Pilate to be afraid? What did he do? He didn't respond violently. Pilate says, don't you understand I have the power to kill you? And what was Jesus' response? It wasn't passive with a V. It was, you only have power from God. And Pilate got shook. Pilate was like, whoa, what happened, huh? He's flipping the tables on Pilate about where true power lies. A similar dynamic happens here with Paul. Paul is in front of these mobs who want to kill him. The Romans are ultimately trying to protect him by sending him away so he doesn't get killed by the mobs. And then the Romans are like, well, let's just flog the guy, you know, because they're obviously such a civilized culture. You know, we, we've moved well beyond that interrogation of, you know, state secrets and property and people. And Paul says, I'm a Roman citizen. This isn't right for you to do this. And guess what happens? Commander gets shook because he realizes if he actually harms this Roman citizen without proper trial, he himself is in danger of being hurt or killed or imprisoned. But again, Paul is not passive with a V. Paul does not sit here with these mobs and go like, yo, just do whatever you want with me. Oh, okay. Commander of the Roman legions, go ahead, flog me. No big deal. He doesn't just apathetically allow whatever happens to him. Many people think that Christian nonviolence is that. It's not that. It's creative imagination of how do we reverse the roles of power when we believe and start from the fundamental position that our temporal life is not the last thing that we're trying to preserve or save. We have been freed from our fear of death, and so we can be creative in how we resist 
nonviolently. And there have been movement after movement and person after person on the human stage that has done this. Dr. King, in our cultural context, is a famous legacy of this very thing. Creatively, nonviolently resisting. It does actually change things. For Paul here, it saved him from being flogged and gave him an audience with even greater authorities of the kingdom of the world to expose them to the kingdom of peace. So what does it look like for us today to try to become people of peace? What does this creative imagination look like? Here is the starting place. There's not a black and white answer. This is what I find people to struggle with so much. The first question, what about the killer at the door, John? And they want a black and white answer of what to do in every scenario. Do I pull a knife, a bat, a rubber stick? How can I? They want to know exactly where the lines are. It's not possible. God is wanting to change us from the inside. And as that happens, I have great faith and trust that the outside will follow. And we will have creative imaginations led by the Holy Spirit to know how we should respond in any given situation. So what can we do? I think we have to intentionally cultivate a mindset of nonviolence. What does it look like for us to actively confront evil without being passive or violent? One author said that most North American Christians have little, if any, experience with organized efforts to topple dictators or overthrow oppressive regimes. Thus, for many of us, the struggle to live nonviolently happens elsewhere in our day-to-day relationships, not in a chance encounter with a stranger or intruder at our door, not in international affairs on the global stage, And sometimes this proves even more of a difficult challenge. We sometimes have the hardest time getting along with those closest to us. People that we see day in and day out, the nasty coworker, the overbearing boss, the obnoxious neighbor or their pet, the disrespectful child, the unreasonable parent. These are the people that we really sometimes struggle to love. Not the ones who test our commitment to nonviolence, but those who expose the violence in our hearts. Practically living out the nonviolent ways of Jesus has almost an infinite amount of possibilities because it impacts the very nature of how we understand humans and our interactions with people. It inverts our value system No longer is preserving our own life or the life of others our primary objective. Instead, we entrust ourselves and everyone else to God, who is the only one that is sovereign over life and death. This inverted value system now frees us to truly love others, even those trying to kill us. And it takes great creativity and wisdom from the Spirit of God for us to figure out what this looks like to resist evil nonviolently in our world, in our workplace, in our neighborhoods, in our homes. 
I can't provide an answer for you. So as we get ready to have a Q&A session at our next All Church Midweek in a couple of weeks, don't ask me those questions. I don't have the answer for you. But as God transforms us individually and as a people, he will lead us and give us the power and strength to respond as Jesus did. I believe that the Prince of Peace will teach us and train us to be people of peace if we allow him. There are a few practical suggestions, some contours, if you will, that I want to recommend in regards of how do we get started? How do we cultivate this nonviolent mindset? How can we become these kinds of disciples that Jesus is trying to shape us into? The first one is to see others as created in God's image. One of the first ways that I believe we are to strive to live nonviolently and to actively cultivate this mindset of nonviolence has to do with what we put in our minds and hearts day to day. The types of entertainment that we take in, the types of things that we talk about, allow to permeate our minds, the things that we fantasize or daydream about. Ultimately, we have to train ourselves to see every other single human being without exception as made in the image of God and having inherent value and worth because they are image bearers of God. And if we see people as created in the image of God, it leads us to humanize them rather than demonize them. And so as you and I strive to see every person, even the overbearing boss, the frustrating coworker, the crazy teenage kid, whatever it is, as we see every person created in the image of God at every stage of their human life and that they are inherently valuable and of great worth, we want to humanize them and not just demonize them looking at the negative. This means that we have to try to refuse to speak ill of others. Instead, try only speaking of their virtues. The person that came to mind a moment ago when I was listing a few options, you all had one, I know you did. This week, that person, try to not speak ill of them in any way, verbally or mentally, and instead speak only of their virtues, some positive quality that you can find in them. And you know, I find that this is especially needed on the internet. Man, I tell you, the internet gives us keyboard courage, doesn't it, Christians? We feel so empowered to share our righteousness with the world on the internet. I want to call you to repent. It's alarming to me how often people act so unlike Jesus on social media in the name of Jesus. It is not the place for you to have a bully pulpit to share every opinion and idea that you think the world needs to know in a way that is judgmental and marginalizing. The internet is only to be, for the Christian, a megaphone for the love and image-bearing nature of every human being that we as Christians believe in. Anything that you do that tears someone else down in the name of Jesus is unrighteous. 
Paul would put it this way in Ephesians 4.29, that you should let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth or out of your keyboard, but only that which is useful for building others up according to their needs. How do I know that passage? I got discipled so much on it when I was a young Christian. I remember this one brother, Bruno. If you watch this, Bruno, God bless you. Bruno. Bruno was one of these people I struggled to love at times because he would pull me aside in the middle of a conversation or a group setting and I would let my sarcasm fly or say something cutting or biting because I was well-trained in the ways of the world. And he would say, brother, let's look at Ephesians 4 in verse 29. And after about three or four times of this brother literally doing that, I had it memorized. And when he would come to me, I'd be like, bro, I know the passage. Don't read it to me. I was so grateful for that brother's willingness to love me, to speak the truth in love to me, to call me to the word of God. And it is not like that's a one-time thing. It's not like, oh, now I memorize Ephesians 4.29 and never struggle with that anymore. If you've known me for more than 15 minutes, you know that that's a verse I still keep ready on hand. As we talk about humanizing rather than demonizing people, I want to share a caveat and a clarification. Humanizing people does not mean that we whitewash or minimize evil. It doesn't mean that we don't confront, critique, or resist evil. Here's a hint, probably don't need to start by doing that online. Instead, it's quite the opposite. Humanizing people means that we love them enough to call for repentance, no matter what it costs us, just as Jesus did. Jesus called people to repent, even people in positions of worldly power and authority that could kill his body. And he did not back down from them, but he would not resist them violently either. And every one of his disciples and the mainstream thought of the Christian church for 350 years followed in these footsteps. But now, we live in a culture of Christianity where we come pack into church. We expect there to be police officers and a SWAT team in the parking lot because God forbid that we don't preserve our physical lives, that which is of most value to us. And I say, repent. This is not easy. Not everybody that has heard me say these kinds of things has liked me for it. And I have had to struggle to cultivate a nonviolent mindset, to love even my enemies. You know, statistically, the most dangerous place for a woman in America is in her own home. She's most likely to be beaten or killed by a man that she knows. The CDC says that over 12 million men and women are victims of rape, physical violence, or stalking by an intimate partner in the US. That means that each minute of every day, an average of 24 people are victimized. And of course, we know that the statistics we have in actuality only represent a small portion of reality. Christian nonviolence does not mean that we turn a blind eye to evil. It does not mean that we are passive and do nothing. It means that we resist nonviolently, that we 
call out evil and call for repentance. And in the church, the home is no place for abuse. And the church is no place for silence about it. Another way that we can cultivate this nonviolent attitude and mindset and heart state is to get to know the other. Many of us have people that we consider the other. And most of us tend to have very little meaningful contact, much less deep friendships with people who are fundamentally different from us, people who we see as the other. And this can be especially challenging in our context here that on the surface can look so homogenous. One author said on this topic, the great tragedy in the church is not that rich Christians don't care about the poor, but that rich Christians don't know the poor. In our society, we are so stratified. It is difficult, if you're honest, to interact meaningfully with people in different stratuses, whether that's economically, ethnically, educationally. Think about your life. You tend to be around people in your stratus. It is the context of our culture. And it takes great effort and intentionality to get to know the other. And if you find it difficult to love people or even know people meaningfully whose skin color, sexual orientation, ethnicity, or political allegiance is different from your own, then try to actively look for opportunities to interact with them. Listen to their stories. Learn about their lives. How many atheists or Buddhists or Muslims do you know and have you sat down to have lunch with? It would take some of us great effort to even think about who that would be. What about having lunch with your colleague or coworker that you know sees the world radically different than you? Maybe they're from a different religion. Maybe they have a different political affiliation and allegiance. Perhaps they say things on social media that bug the tar out of you. Go invite them to lunch. Get to know the other. Learning to cultivate this nonviolent mindset is learning to get to know and go after the other. Ask about their families. Ask about their hobbies, their hopes, their dreams, their fears. They are humans made in the image of God. And the more that we see the other, whoever that might be for us, as a person made in the image of God with all their faults and complexities, just like us, the more that we can have the heart and mind of Christ who loved his enemies even unto his own death. And the last thing that I want to recommend is that we pray for our enemies. Straight from the mouth of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, where he told us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Perhaps more than any one thing, this practice can help us begin to transform into peacemakers that follow the Prince of Peace. Let's close in prayer for our enemies. Jesus, we have many that we feel 
are our enemies. People that we might not even know personally, but we just see them online in their remarks. We think that they're filled with such great evil or twisted thinking or ill-intended motives. God, help us to see the truth that they are your creation. That they bear your image, however distorted, they bear your image just as we do. God, help us to see clearly that truly the only enemy we have ever had was because of our sin against a righteous and holy God. And that you would go first in loving your enemies and be willing to die for them, saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Help us to follow. Help us, Lord, to believe in the resurrection of Jesus and therefore the resurrection that you promise us, that we no longer have to fear death or cling to this life as though it is of the greatest value but God, that you would transform us into a person and a people of peace. That we would actively confront evil in ourselves and around us, that are in others individually and in the structures and systems around us. That we would seek to promote and allow peace to flourish in our communities in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our homes. Father, we need your forgiveness. We fall short, woefully short. Forgive us of our anger, of our self-righteousness and haughtiness and pride. Humble us, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name. Amen.